Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff. Eleanor Goldfield hosts the Project Censored Show this week. We've recently marked 20 years since the second invasion of the Iraq War, and we're still counting the cost for America's addiction, the militarism, and global dominance. In the first segment, Eleanor speaks with Lindsay Kushkarian, Program Director of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. They discuss the Biden administration's record military budget, of course, U.S. imperial violence has been ongoing in Iraq for more than half a century, through proxy wars, sanctions, and our own boots on the ground. To reckon with this vast history of destruction, in the second segment, Eleanor speaks with Matthew Ho, Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network and U.S. Marine veteran. They discuss the horrors of war from his perspective, other lost perspectives, generational forgetting, and much more. Stay with us. Thanks so much for joining us again at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Lindsay Koshgarian, who leads the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies where her work focuses on federal budget priorities and the militarization of the federal budget. Prior to her work at IPS, Lindsay was an economic analyst at the University of Massachusetts and an organizer for reproductive rights in Pennsylvania. Her commentary and analysis of the federal budget and military spending has appeared in NPR, the BBC, CNN, the New York Times, and others. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So on March 9th, the Biden administration released the budget request, which, as you noted in an IPS release, lays out the president's priorities for the country. And in line with presidents before him, Biden is seeking more money for the already vastly bloated war machine, some $886 billion for the Pentagon and military, half of which will go to Pentagon contractors, or to put it another way, a quarter of all discretionary spending would go to Pentagon contractors. And Stephen Semler, who who writes about these things quite often, reported that U.S. arms sales in 2022 had already surpassed Trump-era highs by about $14 billion. And so to start off, Lindsay, can we can you give us an idea of what exactly that means? Like, what is a Pentagon contract? Where do those go to? What is it used for? Yes. So... Um... As you alluded to, about half of the Pentagon budget goes to contractors, and the Pentagon budget is huge. So it's a huge amount of money. It's a very big industry. And there are a few really big players in the space, companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman. The biggest ones are weapons manufacturers, weapons makers. There are also contracts, not just for the manufacturing of weapons, but also for the maintenance of weapons. These weapon systems are very complicated. They take lots of maintenance for many, many years. And so for the contractors, it's the gift that keeps on giving once they get one of these contracts. There's guaranteed to be a lot more to come. And then there are also contracts for less insidious things. There's contracts for everything from telecommunications and IT services, just like any business would have, to catering or dining services. The military does actually feed its people. So there are lots of these contracts, but by far the biggest ones are the weapons makers. 
And so that's really what we're talking about when we talk about these contracts. And the contractors, of course, are private for-profit companies. So they're paying their CEOs millions of dollars in pay packages and bonuses. They are engaging in stock buybacks, which is something that most big corporations do, where they use their revenues to then buy their own stocks to artificially drive up the stock prices. All of that, the CEO salaries, the stock buybacks, all of it is happening with taxpayer money because Lockheed Martin, the biggest Pentagon contractor, gets 70 to 80% of its revenues from the federal government. So that's our tax dollars. And then they're turning around and using those things, not just for making weapons that are contributing to conflicts around the world, but for all the rest of the sort of bad behaviors that we see corporations engaging in. I'm glad that you pointed out that it's, of course, our money, because I think people have a hard time caring so much about war or anti-war organizing, things like that. They're like, what does it have to do with me? And it's because, you know, it is our tax dollars, but also it does come back to us in a very real way. We have the 1033 program, for instance, the militarization of our police and our forces here at home that we're literally paying for our own violent oppression in that way. So, you know, the, this is not just, oh, that's something that's happening over there. It's very much something that happens in our streets as well. That's absolutely right. And the 1033 program that you mentioned is the program where the Pentagon sends its surplus military equipment to law enforcement, civilian law enforcement agencies around the country. So we're talking about local police departments, sometimes in very small towns, getting things like armored vehicles, many, many rifles. Rifles are the most common single item. So all of these really heavily weaponized police departments, part of it is coming from the Pentagon and the Pentagon gives this equipment to local law enforcement agencies at no cost and with no oversight. They've lost track of equipment many, many times. There was one instance where there was a report that was found that someone created a false law enforcement agency with a fake website and applied for weapons from the Pentagon and got them. So it's an extremely ill-supervised program. And even if we wanted our law enforcement agencies to have this militarized equipment, that's going on. And then, of course, when the law enforcement agencies do get the equipment, they're using it to do things like suppress protest and intimidate civilians who are just going out and engaging in their constitutional rights. So it's pretty insidious. And that is all being sponsored, again, by our tax dollars. The other thing is that every time we have the big conflict... The Pentagon buys a bunch more equipment. And we see in the late 2010s, there was the surge in Iraq. That was followed by a surge in equipment to police departments a few years later when that equipment came back from that war. So they are directly related. I find it almost laughably horrifying that it seems easier to get weapons of war than it does to get healthcare. Like signing up for healthcare online is a nightmare, but apparently creating a false law enforcement agency and getting a bunch of weapons is super easy. It's terrifying. It truly is. And speaking of the at-home side of things, you also note that part of this nearly trillion dollar request for, for military, ICE and CBP will receive a considerable amount of money. Two agencies that are responsible for massive human rights violations since their creation. And I, I did want to highlight that one point because I think... This is either something that people don't know or it gets lost. These agencies, they're considerably younger than I am. But for instance, the DHS, which houses CBP, was created in 2002. And you wrote in a, in a Newsweek article recently that since its founding, the U.S. has spent $1.4 trillion 
on the DHS, which is more than seven times what the government spent over the same period on the CDC, including the COVID pandemic response, and more than five times what the government spends on the EPA. And these numbers are just so, so absurd. But can you talk a little bit about this other side of the home front aspect, the DHS and ICE and CBP that are are, are pulling so much funding for what essentially amounts to human rights abuses? This goes to the larger militarization of our federal government. It's not just the Pentagon. It's not just wars in other countries although that is a huge part of it, it's also the militarization here at home. So this is things like the 1033 program. Um, And the 1033 program does also benefit the Department of Homeland Security. So they're getting weapons directly from the Pentagon too. And the Department of Homeland Security, I think one thing is to focus on the name, which is easy to kind of take for granted at this point, but the idea that this is how you provide security. And instead of food programs or housing programs or education or all of the other things, is something that's really ingrained in our government and in our culture in a lot of ways. And I think it's really important to point out that what makes all of us secure in our day-to-day lives are those things like food and shelter and you know having adequate resources for healthcare and all of that. Um, and none of that is part of the Department of Homeland Security's mission. But what is a part of its mission are these things like ICE, which is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is an agency that has deported 5 million people since the founding of the Department of Homeland Security. The vast majority of those people had broken no law except being in the country. And many of them had families. They were connected to people. So when we think about, there's been a lot of outrage a few just a few years ago about family separations under the Trump administration. But the fact is that while that was a huge ramping up of family separations um, and a much more visible form of it, family separations have been going on under the Department of Homeland Security for years and years since its founding. So there are the deportations, there's Customs and Border Protection, which is the border control agency, which has been estimated to be the largest law enforcement agency in the world. And they use military weapons. They have military drones. They have military rifles. There have been deaths at the border. It's an incredibly damaging system. And it's a way of receiving people who are just coming here for humanitarian reasons, because they're coming from places of extreme poverty or places of extreme violence. And we're greeting them with more extreme violence. And again, all of that is funded by our tax dollars. And in the budget that President Biden just released, his request to the Congress for spending, he requested funding for more border patrol agents. And that's been a consistent theme that we've seen over the years. And funding for those two agencies since the founding of the Department of Homeland Security has actually doubled. So we're spending a lot more on it than we were. And we continue to move in that wrong direction. When there are other avenues available, right? There are asylum programs and there are refugee programs. And we have a citizenship and naturalization system for people to get a path to citizenship. So there are other options, but we continue to go toward the militarized option. Yeah. And of course, in terms of other options, we could always stop destabilizing the nations from which these people come. That would yes, also help. Back to our, that goes back to our Pentagon and, and international budget, right? So it's all tied together because, yes, we have done over many, many decades, we have done a lot to destabilize Latin America. We have participated in overthrowing governments. We have participated in, in some cases, supporting cartels. So a lot of the things that are the problems that they're facing now do directly go back to U.S. foreign policy. 
at least for me, I, I granted, I do not have a math brain, but I think a lot of people have a hard time just wrapping their heads around these numbers. You know, we're talking billions, even, you know, up to a trillion dollars. Like, what does that mean? Uh, could you give us some examples of comparison? I mean, you mentioned the things that would be, that should be part of a Department of Homeland Security, like healthcare and education. Could you give us a comparison of what such programs would cost, like a legitimate healthcare program or a legitimate education system, like overhauling these or infrastructure, you know, like the 40,000 bridges that are about to collapse any moment. Sorry if anyone's listening to this while driving over a bridge. Could you give us some comparative analysis there to help wrap our heads around that? Yeah, so a couple. Um, so, you know, we've talked about we've spent $1.4 trillion on the Department of Homeland Security since it, it opened its doors, and which was in 2003. And that money is about three times what it would cost to fully electrify our national grid. So if we wanted to contribute, if we wanted to go from what we have now, which is a, an electric grid nationally that is, you know, very uh, broken up and not able to share power and also very still dependent on fossil fuels to a fully electric national electric grid, we would be able to do that for um, just a fraction of what we've spent on the Pentagon and on Homeland Security. The cost of that would be about um, four and a half trillion dollars, whereas over the past 20 years, we've spent $21 trillion on the Pentagon and on those immigration agencies we talked about and some other federal law enforcement agencies that are heavily militarized. So the lost opportunities in the trillions that we've spent on those things are enormous. Another thing is that a couple of years ago, we identified $350 billion in cuts you could make to the Pentagon budget if you transferred to a national single-payer healthcare system like Medicare for All. And the cost, the additional funds that would need to be raised for a system like Medicare for All, just about track with the $350 billion we identified that you could cut. There are some estimates that say that a Medicare for All system would cost less than that, but that was one of the, the higher estimates. Um, so we are missing out on really important things that would make our lives incredibly better, that would help to solve climate change, that would help to finally address the broken healthcare system. Um, and the fact that there are people who you know, can't afford basic medications in this country because we keep choosing to pour more and more billions into the Pentagon and into things like ICE and Border Patrol. You are listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with Lindsay Koshgarian from the Institute for Policy Studies. And even if you were just looking at this from a purely cold economic perspective and not a human perspective, something like Medicare for All will would end up saving money in the long term. So you you might spend a, a big chunk at the beginning, but then you end up saving billions of dollars because we spend, what is it, like one in every $3 is administrative in our current healthcare system? Yes. And we spend way more per person on healthcare than other countries with equally advanced healthcare. And sometimes you hear claims that it's because our healthcare system here is better, but that's not true. We have worse outcomes. We have higher maternal mortality rates, which is incredibly shameful for a country as wealthy as this, especially since the rates are also really divided up by race. You see, you know, black mothers dying at a much higher rate than white mothers. So all of that is incredibly shameful. It is not true that we have the best healthcare <laughs> system on earth. And it is true that transferring to a system where everyone had access would give us better health outcomes um, and save lives. And as somebody who has lived in Sweden quite a bit in my life, and Sweden has its own slew of problems, but I can say that the U.S. does not have the best health care system. <laughs> 
Most people who've lived in a country with a single payer system will say will say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I also find it interesting because this is money that would be spent here at home on bettering people's lives and as you pointed out, giving people security. But even if we just looked at globally, you know, like the the UN estimates that in order to end world hunger by 2030, it would be it would cost forty billion dollars a year. Forty billion. I mean, that's that is nothing. I don't even know what fraction that is of the Pentagon budget, but it's like finding loose change in the in the couch cushions. And so we could literally the U.S. could literally eradicate world hunger in you know less than ten years. Yeah, that's about five percent of the Pentagon budget. So it yes, if we and and the Pentagon budget has grown by that much just since Biden took office. So. We keep going at a rate where we could be putting that money towards, like you said, ending world hunger. And we keep choosing again. It's a choice again and again. We keep choosing not to make that choice. So I'm curious, this is a budget proposal, although it seems like proposals, particularly for weapons spending, just seem to fly right on through. Do you see any kind of potential for pushback in Congress or this this is just going to get stamped and sent along on its way? It's a little bit of each. So what we tend to see is that the president's budget proposal, especially when it's a Democratic president, tends to be the bottom for what Congress will ultimately approve for the Pentagon. So this is a proposal for $886 billion. It's likely to go higher than that, especially because this budget includes very little aid for Ukraine and Congress keeps approving more military aid for Ukraine. So we will probably see that number go higher when Congress gets their hands on it, which is happening. It's going to start happening in the coming weeks. We'll start to see hearings and get an idea of where they're headed with it. But on the other hand, we do have some champions in Congress who are calling to cut this budget back. So just days before the president's budget release, um, Representative Barbara Lee, who was the single vote against the Afghanistan war more than 20 years ago, and Representative Mark Pocan introduced something called the People Over Pentagon Act. And that would cut $100 billion from the Pentagon budget to put toward other needs. And the truth is, that's not even enough, but it would be a good start. And it's ambitious enough that it's a place to start. And part of the reason they chose that number is because there was also a report from the Congressional Budget Office in the last couple of years that said that we could cut that much without affecting our national security. So cut $100 billion, it doesn't change anything for our national security, but we would have that money to invest in other things. So there's that piece of legislation, which is right now is gaining co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. Um, And there is very likely to also be something similar, like an amendment to the actual Defense Authorization Act is what it's called, to the actual bill that funds the Pentagon, will likely have a similar amendment or even possibly multiple amendments that that will be able to get votes. But we've had those votes in past years, and they've not gotten enough votes to pass. So right now, activists are still working on gaining enough support for those amendments to actually be able to stop the growth in the Pentagon budget in Congress. I mean, it's remarkable how there's endless amounts of money for for those type of things, but uh, but not to to help people actually, as you pointed out, stay secure. So, Lindsay, wrapping up here, we also spoke recently to activist Brian Becker, who is also a radio host that was talking about the shift in the anti-war movement since he started around the Vietnam era. How do you get people organized on this? Like, how do you feel is a good way to engage folks? One thing we've been working really hard on is sort of cross-movement organization over the last few years. One example of that is uh, the Poor People's Campaign, which 
as a revival of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign was launched, relaunched in the 50th anniversary of that campaign in 2018. And that campaign explicitly targets racism, poverty, environmental degradation, and militarism. And they're specifically going after the Pentagon budget. And they're pulling in lots of people who are not typical peace activists. So when I talk to Poor People's Campaign organizers, a lot of them are coming from other issues. They're coming from affordable housing, or they're coming from clean drinking water, or they're coming from you know any number of issues that affect poor people in this country. But when they hear and learn about the budget ramifications of Pentagon spending, and most of them generally share anti-war sentiments, then they are able to start getting involved. So that's that's one way. Another is that we've really started to tie together issues of militarism across the budget. So the Pentagon and the overlap between that and DHS, the Department of Homeland Security that we've talked about, and the ways that those interact. And that means that we can have ties between the traditional peace movement and immigrant rights movement. So there are a lot of ways to kind of grow the movement. And that that is the goal, is to grow the movement, get more people who are working on this, who care about this, and being vocal about it. And that's the way that we'll ultimately be able to change things. Another thing we know is that from polling, younger people in this country, you know, sort of with every decade younger you get, people have a different view, both of military spending, but also also of the U.S. role in the world. And younger people are much less likely to think that the U.S. should be a leader in the world. They're much less likely, or to be the single leader in the world, they're much less likely to think that the U.S. should use its military to enforce its values. So I think getting those people who already have those views to be more active, that's what the answer is. that was Eleanor Goldfield speaking with Lindsay Kushgarian of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Up next, Eleanor speaks with Matthew Ho, Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Stay with us. Welcome, everyone, to the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Matthew Ho, who's the Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network and an Emeritus Senior Fellow with the Center for International Policy. He is a disabled Marine Corps combat veteran, and in 2009, Matt resigned his post with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest over the escalation of that war. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me with you, Eleanor. Folks might recall that I spoke about Matt in a previous episode when I was discussing the lack of democracy in our voting system in the United States. But today we are inviting Matt onto the show to discuss something different, but of course interconnected with regards to democracy and imperialism. So Matt, we talk a lot about 
war and and specifically the Iraq war on Project Censored, the WMD lies that pushed us into it, the uh, creation of terrorists in order to perpetuate war, war crimes, etc. So what I want to get into that's a bit different than what we typically talk about is to start off with the psychology of this. Uh, Because it's one thing for me and listeners like me who have never been in the military and have done a lot of piecework that, yeah, war is bad and you shouldn't do it. But the psychology, the U.S. culture of romanticizing war is still very loud and present as we look at the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq invasion. And it ensnares the imaginations of millions of Americans, many who go on to enlist in the military. And as the popular anti-war slogan goes, I'm already against the next war. And if we are going to be against that war and these wars, we got to throw a wrench into that culture of violence, this psychology of war. So to start off with, Matt, can you talk a little bit about this, this culture of violence that brings people in to the military that, that starts off these endless wars? It is, you know, from the time that we start to have a consciousness about ourselves and how we fit into society, how we fit into our communities, what we aspire to be, we've already been inundated with all this type of messaging, conditioning, the culture, the romanticism of it all. So I'm old enough, you know, I grew up in uh, in New Jersey, New York, in Channel 5, Channel 9, Channel 11. You know, I'm old enough to have watched like the the black and white Westerns and the World War II movies that they would show on Saturday afternoons. That type of, just one example of, of, of the type of romanticism we're talking about here, the cultural romanticism. Then you add in other aspects of society. Plus, I think there's a real certain human condition, human aspect of this where you look and you look at nation states going back. And I know that there's a lot, a lot of work out there that shows violence is not the predisposed condition of humans. However, possibly for nation states, it is. And then that type of how that filters down, how it affects us and how we see ourselves in our community, as well as then, you know, there's a a peculiar aspect of being a man and wanting to be a leader, improving yourself and so forth. You know, so I think there's another part of this too that I I speak about a lot or I've come to understand is that we tend to see our generations as being different. We tend to believe that we will not do what those before us have done. So you can understand the line of history. You can understand uh, American imperialism, American empire, but still somehow believe that your generation will be different. And certainly that's how I was. That's how stupid I was, maybe how cowardly I was in terms of not you know, really critiquing that uh, notion I had. It, it was a lie. It's an excuse, but it was prevalent. And I went in the Marine Corps in, in January 98, and I had, uh, you know, at that point, you had colonels and generals and sergeants major who had been in Vietnam. And all of them, to a man, stood in front of us and said, we would never do that again. The United States will never do another war like Vietnam, right? Just as Korean War vets said the same thing too, just as veterans of the Spanish-American War said the same type of thing, we will never do a war like what we did in the Philippines ever again. So, you know, I think that lying to ourselves about us, about who we are, what we do, where we fit in, that somehow our generation is different, contributes to this overall cultural conditioning that we have to somehow think that violence can be a force for good. And I'm a big fan of the theologian Walter Wink 
And, you know, he, he spoke a lot. He wrote a lot about the myth of redemptive violence. And you could see that Wink critiqued Star Wars quite a bit, film that was integral to me growing up. It shaped what I thought leadership should be, what I thought purpose should be, what I thought I should be, right? Who I thought we were as a society. We're on the side of the rebellion. We're not the evil empire, right? I mean, so those kinds of things. And Wink critiques that in this idea, and it's it's as clear as what he says it is. It's a myth of redemptive violence. So somehow we can use violence to attain justice, violence to attain some type of reconciliation or, or, or retribution, violence to attain some kind of reparation, you know, violence for the good. And I think so many of us are conditioned that way. And I certainly was, even though in election and academically, I didn't quite believe it. But again, I thought we were different. One of the many lies I told myself that allowed me to take part and participate in the Iraq war and then the Afghan war. I think that's so incredibly powerful, that cognitive dissonance that, like you said, that you didn't academically or intellectually believe it, but then at the same time, you were throwing yourself into it. Because of course, this is different. I'm different. We're different. And this is a totally different situation. And there we have, you know, history repeating itself, as you pointed out, in the in the long line of of unnecessary wars that the US has started and and fought. There's another aspect too I want to, yeah. to just address real quick, Eleanor, because I think many people will see this as well. The discourse that we have in our public intellectualism, the discourse that our establishment allows, that our public schools and our private colleges allow. I could be my high school class history honor winner, right? I could go to a very good private college and I could never have read Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn or Malcolm X or Angela Davis, right? You know those names, but they are associated from the establishment sources as fringe. You know, Chris Hedges talks about how there are certain people that the New York Times, when he was a journalist for the Times for all those decades, there are certain people at Times you never would be allowed to ever call for comment, Noam Chomsky being one of them, say, or Howard Zinn, another one. You can have an excellent education by our relative to our standards, right? You can have read so much you can do as I do, did subscribe to the major and leading publications of the day. I used to get the New York Times delivered to my home. When I was 15 years old, I had a subscription to The Economist, things like that. Had subscriptions to The Atlantic, uh, had subscriptions to The New Yorker, these very prominent, important establishment. You know, And they would have people who write in them that were somehow seen as critiquing our overall system or that they're conversations would be deemed as kind of cutting edge or contentions. But the reality was it was all within, what's it called? The Overton window. It was all within the allowable discourse. There was no one ever pointing to the great crimes of the empire. Any type of critique like that, just to say a critique of capitalism, was just not simply allowed. So you could talk about, say, economics, the failures of the American auto industry. But overall, you couldn't discuss the greater issues of the failures of the American economic system. So, you know, you had that as well, I think, that really helps shape people for going into the military, for allowing themselves to deceive themselves, to willingly do it, and then get to such a point. This is one thing I want people to really understand. Get to such a point that you know you are deceiving yourself. But you don't have the guts to step forward through it. You don't have the you don't have the wherewithal 
to break that. And of course, the, the, the military does quite a lot to condition people. So, you know, 20 years ago, a young man goes into the Army Infantry or to the Marine Corps Infantry. If he goes into the Marine Corps Infantry, he goes through 13 weeks of recruit training. He goes through, I think at that time, I think it was eight weeks of advanced infantry training. And then he goes to his unit. And all that unit does is practice to kill every day. That's all they do. And the training is a scientifically, academically uh, described discipline in order to ensure that these young men are being conditioned to not just obey, but to kill without thought, to kill without recourse. That, of course, is only good in the moment. This is why I don't use the term brainwashing, because they're conditioned. Because when you come home, when you leave that and you're out of the bubble, you're out of the group think, right? You're out of that culture. That begins to break down, and this is one of the reasons why you see so many veteran suicides. You're listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Your point actually brings me to my next question, because this is something that I've spoken to other veterans about as well. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, because, you know, we're told as non-military folks, oh, your job is to put a yellow ribbon on your car and to thank veterans for their service and to just basically pedestal them. But in the kind of way where they don't get actual help. I mean, you're not supposed to push your Congress people to vote to give more money to the VA. Like you just thank thank you for your service and put on the yellow right. ribbon. How do you feel? I know it's it's probably impossible to to describe to someone who hasn't lived it, but that extreme shift coming back to the culture that pedestals this kind of horrific violence and to have that turmoil going on within yourself. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, that that dissonance is horribly destructive. And actually, you know, when when I was in Iraq with my my Marine Corps company, we had a satellite dish to get television at our company headquarters. And we got a bunch of different channels. One of them was Fox News. I don't know how we got that. We didn't get anything else, you know, besides different movie channels. And, Fox and, you know, found all a way in... to you. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, one day my first sergeant, and this was in 2006, my first sergeant says to me, he says, hey, sir, you know what? I'm not going to put that Fox News channel on any longer. And I said, okay, yeah. What, what, why? And he said, because it's upsetting the Marines. And what he meant was the dissonance between the propaganda they were hearing and what they were living, what they were experiencing in Iraq. And this is really uh, one of the things that really disturbs and distresses so many combat veterans, particularly this is uh, one of the foundational aspects of moral injury, which is 
a clinical term for guilt, shame, regret of such magnitude that, you know, it's, it's as if your moral foundations have been completely ripped out. And this is what many people, a lot of studies, a lot of research, the VA is working on this more, the effects of killing, what this does to a person's mind and soul. And many people, including myself, believe this is the, the leading reason for combat veteran suicides. I don't know anyone. You know, I was suicidal it was because of the guilt I had from what I did. I don't know any anyone who's been through this who is putting a gun in their mouth because they feel scared because a bomb went off and now they, they can't shake that fear. It's about guilt, whether it be survivor's guilt or guilt as a perpetrator, what's called perpetrators-induced traumatic stress, which sets apart combat veterans from so many other people who've experienced trauma because you're a perpetrator. But then what you have, though, to your point, Eleanor, is that you go to a baseball game, you go to a hockey game, and you're asked to stand up so that everyone can clap because you're a hero. And in your mind, you're saying, I just took part in organized murder. I just took part in the willful destruction of a people in their nation. So you do, you have that dissonance exists between what the veteran is coming home, grappling with what they just did, what they perpetrated, and what society, you know, the American society is, well, they're all heroes. You know, we're, you're all heroes. It's, 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 it's almost, it's, 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 it's religious, this type of obsequious response to the military, this deference to the military. And I want to also say, though, because on the anniversary of the Iraq War, I shouldn't even say Iraq war, it's Iraq invasion, because the war against Iraq by the United States stretches back through the 70s and continues now. But this idea that I think something that troubles, I think, a lot of us who talk about the war from the, the American veteran perspective is something that Tobias Wolf wrote about years ago. Tobias Wolf, famous author, of course, he was also an army officer in the Vietnam War. And in one of his memoirs, he relates a story uh, about he and his uh, unit destroying Vietnamese homes. And he's telling it to people back here. And he basically comes to this, this idea, this notion that troubles so many of us, that he said it's a peculiar American notion that American boys would go overseas, destroy other people's homes, and then come home and want people to feel sorry for them. And so it's 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 a it's a very difficult thing a lot of times to talk about this because you feel as if you're centering yourself, you're centering this American experience. I'm center, you know, I'm centering what I did as a perpetrator, and that leaves out the victims. Also, too, you have this real American aspect to compartmentalize everything, to give arbitrary start dates for different historical periods so that the war in Iraq does not begin until March 19, 2003. The fact that the United States under the Clinton administration have been bombing Iraq every third day throughout the entire Clinton administration, the fact that the Clinton administration had begun 13 years of sanctions that continued up through 2003, that killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children, according to multiple studies. You know, the first Iraq war, which just ruined, uh, killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and ruined 
It just devastated Iraqi infrastructure. Uh, the Iran-Iraq war, which is a proxy war for the Americans, which killed over a million people, devastated entire cities on and on back into the 70s, where, you know, Chris Hedges reminded me of this just a week or two ago. The United States, the Nixon administration, starts arming the Kurds in 1972 to cause instability in Baghdad to try and overthrow the government. That lasts for a number of years. I was born in 1973. So if I was an Iraqi, my entire life would have been dominated by the American government trying to use violence against my country and my people and creating, in the best moments, political instability, but mostly creating just incredible death and suffering. And so, you know, I think the way we look at this, we look at ourselves, the way we look at others, and the way we look at our history, I think is is very instructive to understand how easy it is as a nation for us to go overseas, destroy entire regions, stomping throughout the greater Middle East, stomping throughout the, the Muslim world, and just destroying people without any any type of observation on our part. Thank you for for highlighting all that. And I I also really appreciate what you said about centering the American experience uh, in in Iraq as opposed to centering the the Iraqi experience. And of course, I'm I'm talking to you during this during this interview. So I'm I'm very clearly centering not just the um, the American military experience, but yours specifically. And I and I wanted to do that specifically because I I really feel that your insight is something that we as Americans can grab a hold of. In a lot of ways, it's easier for people to grab a hold of stories and experiences that are shared in some ways. And I've noticed this in organizing that people get this like trauma overload. You know, they see pictures from Gaza, they see pictures from Mm -hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. And it's just, and it's not that we shouldn't have that information. It's just that people get this trauma overload. But then if you tell them that Steve down the street, who they grew up with, is struggling with this extreme moral injury. And this is what happens when we engage in these endless wars. Like it's not just, it's not just something that happens far away. Like this is something that has become so much of a fabric of our society at this point. I think that this is also a powerful uh, tool in terms of anti-war organizing. Because we can talk about like, hey, we don't want our neighbors and our, our our friends' kids and things like this to be on the receiving end of this horror that is to perpetuate war. So I'm also curious in, in that same vein, how do you feel that you can reach out to people who are thinking about the military, not just because of the culture of violence, but also because of the very insidious economic draft that exists in this country? You know, a number of years ago, my friend said, hey, my stepson is thinking about going into the military. And he's like, you want to talk to him? And I just sent him a photo of all the different medications I take. And I said, do you want to be, you know, 45, 46 years old? This is a few years ago, taking 20 pills a day. Thank God I don't take that anymore, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, that type of of really explaining what this is about, th- that this is such a... Uh, it's a culture of violence where the escalation of that violence is part of the institution, where there is violence at all levels and the supremacy of violence is 
what dominates how the hierarchy is formed, if you will. Uh, and if there's a way, ability then to communicate that, and I think the way to do that is through art, through film, you know, certainly through programs like this. But I think the depiction of the reality of it so that more young men and women understand what the actual military is as an institution of violence and how that will be used against them potentially, not just directed outward. I think that is something that we find ways to do. And of course, the military, the Pentagon is well aware of this. And so what has the Pentagon done? As many people know, there's a new film coming out. I can't remember what it's called, but the Pentagon has co-opted Hollywood. So Hollywood receives hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially billions of dollars a year in subsidies from the Pentagon. So that what you're what you're up against here is a living organism. You know, when you talk about particularly state recruiting, what you're also up against is a massive, massive public relations department within the Pentagon that is roughly seven to eight times bigger than any private public relations firm in the world. Uh, a number of years ago, the Pentagon's PR budget, which includes recruiting and a whole host of other things, was about seven or eight billion dollars. And the largest PR firm in the world was about $900 million, right? I mean, so like, you know, I mean, you just what you're up against here, we have to really understand this Leviathan using the mythology of the United States, putting it into terms. And then, of course, we haven't even gotten into all the video games that are out there that the Pentagon has been involved with quite hand in glove type of thing, because they also see the real value in recruiting. You are listening to the Project Censored Radio Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll now continue our conversation with Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network and Marine veteran Matthew Ho. The great thing is that the Pentagon for most of the last 15 years has had real troubles recruiting. And last year, the Army missed its recruitment number by about 25%. They're having a lot of difficulty in recruiting young men and women. They are now recruiting at the lowest levels they have recruited at since Vietnam in terms of the qualifications. 80% of people who join the military are young men and women who have family members in the military. And there's also to the economic draft. The military, the Pentagon is really good at hiding that. Uh, just to give you an example of how they do that, they claim that their recruits are economically representative of the entire nation. And the way they do that is that if you were to join the army, Eleanor, what they would do is they would give you, in terms of your income, your household income, how they would assign that to you, they would ask you, how much do you make? Or they would say, they would just say, oh, you're from this zip code. The uh, median, right? So every recruit who joins the US military has the median income assigned to them of their zip code. And then they turn around and say, isn't this fantastic? Our recruits all have the median income of this nation. It's there's completely representative of our people. And we're not taking, it says no economic draft. We're not taking from the poor, you know, I mean, which is just complete nonsense and utter lie. The, uh, you know, any talk to any of the guys that do recruiting, they'll tell you they go once a year to the wealthy white high school because they have to, and they spend all their time at the poor white high schools, the black high schools and the Latino high schools, because that's where they get their people from. The thing is, too, it's kind of outmoded because most recruits going into the military aren't coming out of high school. Most of them have been out of high school for a couple of years. 
So most of your recruits going out, coming out of the military are people who've been out and around now and are looking for something, but this is how they do it. And it's just one more, one more, one more way to understand just how evil of an institution this is that will do everything it can to survive and grow. And of course, it doesn't care who it crushes. And if that means bringing young men and women in and destroying them, body, mind, and soul, well, that's just how it operates. You mentioned that they're not reaching their recruitment numbers. Why do you think that is? Well, they've actually done their own studies and the studies I don't know if they were leaked or if they were publicly disclosed. And a lot of it has to do with fear of death, fear of, of, of getting PTSD, as it was described, as well as not wanting to leave family and friends. Republicans in the Congress will say it's because the military is too woke. And the studies that came out said that that was the least concern of any of the recruits or potential recruits. So I think a lot of it has to do with the reality of, of the military that Americans have seen over the years. Parents don't want their children going off to be cannon fodder. Parents don't want their kids going off, coming home with PTSD and traumatic brain injury and moral injury. You know, one of the things, you know, we talk about the violence in Iraq and how violent that war was, and the numbers don't seem to depict how violent it was. 4,500 American soldiers were killed there. Well, that's not a lot. 50,000 were killed in Vietnam. You know, you include 3,500 contractors that were killed there as well, who would have been doing those same jobs in uniform in any previous war before, you know, uh, the, the, the great outsourcing and privatization of war began. But even that's not a whole heck of a lot then. But then you look at what they say for the number of traumatic brain injuries. And the VA estimates about a quarter million Iraq and Afghan veterans have traumatic brain injuries from their time in Iraq or Afghanistan. And you can't really pull apart the Iraq and Afghan vets because so many of us did you know, deployments to both places. You know, and, and that level of violence then, because the majority of those traumatic brain injuries are from explosive blasts. So you begin to understand the level of violence. What we have was we have vehicle armor and body armor that protected us, that in previous wars, those explosive blasts would have killed us or very, very horribly maimed you. But in these wars, you picked yourself up, dusted yourself off and moved on. We had that protection. And then we had the medical care, which no military in the world has ever had like what we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Iraqi people, of course, had none of that. So you can imagine the violence on their end what they experienced, and we'll never really fully know, at least a million dead, how many millions more wounded, how many psychologically scarred, we don't know. The point, though, is that Americans, I think, understand that level of violence in the terms of knowing people who came home from those wars drastically changed. And that type of understanding, that familiarity with what war does to people, even though we still as a society culturally deny it, I think on the individual or community level, it's understood. And that then translates into this lack of desire, particularly over the last 15 years or so, to join the military. And I think that's one of the reasons why the military has such recruiting problems. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear it. It's it's obviously uh, horrific that it's taken this much to to pull those numbers down. But uh, this Iraq invasion, as you rightfully put it, not the Iraq war, war also makes it sound like there were like two sides that agreed to go to war or something. As opposed, I say that because Iraqis have taught me that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, because Iraqis have have taught me that that this is the right way. This is the way we look at it. You know, and certainly when you take a step back and you look at the grand scheme of American war and violent meddling against Iraq by the Americans for 50 years. Okay, yeah, there really is no point to say that this is the war. This is where an invasion and occupation occurred. Certainly, yeah. So, but it's kind of like the Vietnamese don't call it the Vietnam War, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And that's certainly, you know, uh, I guess we, we come back to our, our own perspectives and how we see things. Um, it, it's the ability to understand the other, right? It's that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I, I think this is the crux of what we're seeing around the world now with the, the the failure, the disastrous failure. I don't like to use failure because that implies that there might have been some good intent behind it. But the disastrous consequences of the American hegemony, the American unipolar world, you know, where for decades, the United States has refused to allow itself to see the perspective of others, let alone have strategic empathy to think, okay, how might the Chinese react if we keep sailing our aircraft carriers up to their coastline and humiliating them? Oh, they're going to build their own Navy. They're going to increase their nuclear weapons fleet by threefold. Who could have seen that coming? Right? Like that type of inability because of our own arrogance, our own ignorance, our hubris, what have you. You know, another term I've come to use for what occurred in Iraq on the Iraq occupation is not to use the term insurgency, which interestingly enough, we were not allowed to use until late 2004, 2005. The senior level of the Department of Defense didn't want to hear that term because insurgency meant there was some legitimacy, that there was some grievance that was valid. But I've since really come to learn, I just heard it again the other day, that that itself is inadequate that the appropriate term would be Iraqi resistance. I mean, when I was in Iraq in, in say, 04, 05, 06, 07, the Sunni insurgency was about 2 or 3% Al-Qaeda, and the rest of it was nationalist. Young men fighting us because we were occupying them. Their families and their neighbors supporting them because we were occupying them. So this idea, this, 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 this use of resistance rather than insurgency is something I'm really trying to get myself to utilize because I think it, it better encapsulates what was occurring there, why they were fighting us, why they were resisting occupation. Dozens of Iraqis are still being killed every month in political violence. This is something that I think most Americans don't know. I'm not talking about Iraqi soldiers, Iraqi police, Iraqi paramilitaries. ISIS or any of that. We're talking about regular just families being killed, dozens of people every month in political violence. It has not ended. But even if we had, you know, some millions are still homeless. Last count I saw was from a couple of years ago, but 8 million Iraqis were still refugees, either internally displaced or externally. Equivalent number in the US would be about 75 or 80 million Americans being homeless because of that. But even if we had a wand and took care of all that and the political instability and the violence was put to rest. For generations, they are going to suffer, the Iraqis, because their children are going to die because we poisoned their water in their land. And I think that is the most significant and endearing legacy of all that we're talking about. What we have done to children that haven't even been born yet. And so I think that is what weighs and should weigh heavy on our nation. 
as a conscience and the, the fact that we can go this week and I have not heard, not seen anything about reparations being spoken about except from Iraqi authors. That's the only people I see. I've not seen any American voices. You know, there are some out there, obviously, of course, but in terms of prominent, you know, in the corporate media or anything, suggesting anything remotely close to any 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 degree of reparations to at least try and bring about some degree of assistance or comfort to the Iraqi people. We want to smash, crash, blast, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide, wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why. Taxing all the prisons and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens. Hypnotized by the master thief. Combine, conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential. If you ain't at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we flip the brothers in our